You're listening to the Rubbish Trip Podcast. Two no-waste nomads talk trash with people in Aotearoa, New Zealand. At the end of March 2019, a heavy storm led the Waiho River on the west coast of the South Island to burst its banks, causing massive infrastructural damage as well as loss of life. The storm also ripped open a legacy landfill situated on the riverside in Fox Glacier, releasing tons of historic rubbish into the river, out to sea and kilometres up the west coast's largely pristine beaches. The flood also swept away large piles of present-day recycling from the local transfer station. As national attention focused on the infrastructural damage caused by the flood, including the crumbling of the Waiho River Bridge, Locals in Okarito were starting to uncover devastating amounts of rubbish strewn across the beaches and up the riverbeds, and to recognise the urgent need for a coordinated clean-up effort. One of these locals, Mike Bilado, was the first to start sounding the alarm, taking it upon himself to call upon authorities to acknowledge the scale of the problem and to respond accordingly. Within a short amount of time, he found himself in charge of coordinating the volunteer cleanup effort and briefing politicians and other emergency response teams on the ground. In this podcast, recorded seven weeks on from the day the storm hit, Mike describes to us the nature and scale of the problem caused by the opening of the historic Fox landfill. Despite the fact that there's still no end in sight to the cleanup effort or the risk of further pollution, Mike explains how both public attention and central government funds appear to be drying up. He also shares with us what this devastating event can teach us about the responsibility we all share in reducing our waste footprint. Mike's from Canada, so we started off by asking him how is it that of all the places in the world, he found himself living on the west coast of the South Island of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, well, it's a pretty amazing place and I've tried to leave several times, uh, and I can't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I first moved to New Zealand, I was living up in Blenheim and Picton and yeah, it was just time to move on from there. I've been up there for almost three years and I saw a job down here working for a kayak company and I came down and I was like, wow, this place is awesome. Yeah. I just sort of fit in really well with the way things work down here and the way people are and Despite going overseas several times and trying living in other places, I've always this has been my home base for coming up on five years now. And wow. friends is a cool place, but it's a little bit too busy for me. And Bocarito, <laughs> uh, it's it's incredible. It's a great little community out here, and just has so much to offer. And I love the, having the sound of the waves in my ears all the time. So, yeah. It is an amazing community, an amazing spot in the world. We remember it fondly. So you, you've been living uh, in Okarito for a few years now, and you yeah. have sort of land. You're saying you've tried to leave many times and, and failed. And I think uh, our understanding is you were going to be leaving not that long ago, and then things changed pretty massively following the flood of the Waihoru River. Can you talk a little bit about the role that you're currently taking on in the community, just very broadly, like what you're doing right now? So when the storm hit, we all knew it was bad, obviously, because the bridge went and we knew there were a lot of slips. And uh, you're right, I was planning on leaving. Uh, I was supposed to be heading over to South America for a bit and then I've 
some wedding commitments to be at for for some friends and some family members so i thought i'd just take off for the winter and it was all planned and when this happened i, I thought oh this is going to be really tough to leave and go and sit on a beach somewhere in Colombia having a beer with a friend well i knew everybody back here was going to be dealing with a bit of a mess but i didn't realize that there was also going to be a rubbish mess and so it was the thursday after the storm and I was down the beach with a couple of friends and there were two little girls there who started picking up rubbish and coming back with boxes and boxes full of rubbish and they were really distraught and they just didn't want to be at the beach anymore or anything and it was um yeah it was pretty moving i've always been the kind of person to go around and pick up rubbish anyways even since i was a little kid so i was pretty inspired and i thought well tomorrow i'll get up and i'll go and have a look and see how bad it is but i got home to an email from a friend saying that the landfill had washed out half of the landfill on the Fox Legacy one. So that landfill has been closed for about 20 years to my understanding, but it was in operation for 40 years. A lot of water had come down through the Fox Valley, washed through that landfill and washed it out. So the Fox River feeds into the Cook River and it washed it all through the Cook River and out the sea. So the next day I walked out to the Waiho, the north side of the Waiho, and I camped out there and in the morning i saw the state of it i mean i could see the state of it all the way down there were heaps of locals out picking up rubbish along the way and everybody was out doing their bit but when i got down there what i saw the next morning so that would have been the saturday morning i just started crying and couldn't believe how bad it was because i spent a lot of time down those beaches and it was a beautiful part of the world and pristine really it's a pristine part of the world and i got down there and it was just a disaster can you describe what it was that you saw? Endless amounts of rubbish. Anything from tractor tires to oil containers to rope to bale wrap. Lots and lots of shredded plastic bags, little milk creamers, toothbrushes, toys, anything that you can think of that you wouldn't want to have laying all over a pristine beach. And where I camped out, I could hear penguins all around me that night. And, you know, in the morning there were penguin prints walking through all this rubbish. and. Mm-hmm. Um, I also know that there's a lot of Hector's dolphins at, especially around the mouth of the Waiho. So uh, I was pretty upset. I used all my rubbish bags pretty quick. Um, I tried to take some starch bags down there, <laughs> which yeah, I was yeah. using bin bags, and they did all right, but not to not to handle the amount of rubbish that um, I was trying to lug back. So I ended up stashing some stuff in the sand dunes. Met up with a few other people who were who had camped out and who were walking down there and picking up rubbish again. Uh, When I got back into Okorito, I talked to a few people and asked if anybody had called for help and if there was anything happening. And I was told that everybody was kind of just sitting back and waiting to see, you know, whose responsibility this was going to be and who was going to clean it up and what's the best way to attack it. And I just thought, well, we don't have time for that. So I went to my back to my house and I typed up an email and um, I sent it around to I kind of went crazy. I started sending it to all the local news outlets who mm-hmm. respired, um, responded quite a while, quite quickly. And then also to, to the PM and to Jeannie Sage and anybody that I thought should listen. I also went onto Instagram and started messaging it to a whole bunch of celebrities that I knew were activists and just trying to get them to share, share the information. And um, some friends and I started up a Facebook page to kind of communicate with wider public what's happening if i could just jump in at this point you were sending out all these messages how long after the flood was this this was eight days later 
Eight days. And so at that point, there hadn't been any sort of organized cleanup or even recognition, really, of the scale of the problem? Not as far as the rubbish goes. You know, obviously, local pilots would have seen what had happened straight away. They had the best view from the air, and I talked to a couple of them that did see it straight away. But as far as stuff washing up on the beach, it, it takes a few days. And then, yeah, everybody started reacting as far as like locally but yeah there was there wasn't really much going on as far as a big organization coming in and trying to sort it out and so we just kind of started mobilizing people and then a local helicopter company offered me a helicopter to take one load out and pick them up at the end of the day and sling some rubbish out and so I used that as sort of a bargaining tool, I guess, when <laughs> I ended up in some meetings with people. And I didn't really know what was going on <laughs> or who I was talking to, to be honest, at the beginning. And um, now I'm aware. But yeah, and there were some people from regional council there and stuff. And I said, well, look here, this was on Tuesday now. I said, we're, we're good to go. And I've told people that we're going out on Wednesday. So we're going to go. But it'd be great if you guys were going to come with us and come to the table with more resources. And so, yeah, they, they just said, yeah, go for it. Book, book as many choppers as you can fill. Let's get people out there and let's meet up. And they came into friends and they set up a EOC and brought in Eugenie Sage came in and we, we briefed her. And um, it was pretty funny. Like, <laughs> I was just standing there in like a ratty old T-shirt and a pair of wool socks in the EOC. Um, <laughs> talking to Eugenie Sage about the mess that was out there. And I mean, she was really receptive and complimentary to the volunteer effort. Maritime New Zealand came in, they did an awesome job and brought a lot of structure in. So I guess at that stage, I was somehow became the volunteer coordinator. We're not really using volunteers now, but we're, we will be getting back into it. It's just because we really need to make sure we know the people that are going into the rivers because there are quite a few hazards in there. And we just want to make sure they're people who can deal with those hazards. So we actually have contracted teams going out into the river right now, small teams, but they're doing a bang up job. So, mm. Because this landfill was, you know, a long running established landfill and there were all manner of things put into the landfill, I suppose. And, and so some of those things are potentially hazardous and toxic, right? And your, I guess your team is having to deal with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're not picking up anything, super hazardous at the moment where they are it's mainly just soft plastics but there have been needles so we've got them needle proof gloves and anything that's super questionable then nobody's touching but i walked the river last weekend with a friend and we we're the first ones to walk the whole length of it to go and see what's really there and it took us about seven and a half hours we went and collected data along the way and close to the mouth of the river there was a lot of broken up asbestos and that seemed to be where like a lot of the hazardous stuff was and then as we worked our way up it seemed like it was almost more recent rubbish or stuff that was similar to what we use today so the landfill was opened but our understanding is also that the flood swept through the floor of the transfer station the operating transfer station in franz joseph and so a lot of actual piles of present day recycling that was ready to be shipped off also swept out in Fox, not in Friends. In, in Fox, sorry, sorry, yeah. yeah. In Fox. Yes, so it swept through in Fox, yep. So, and you can actually see where a lot, a lot of that stuff is clumped together in different spots. So it's, there are a lot of glass bottles, but it's mainly plastic <laughs> bottles, and there's just heaps and heaps and heaps of them. You know, that's, mm -hmm. not, that's not historic rubbish. So 
yeah, it's not it was yeah not even rubbish in a sense recycling. Yeah. And so, can you also describe the scale, the spread of how far you you know you've been finding rubbish so that the river like burst around Fox is is this correct? And then it's swept yeah. and it's gone. How far north has it gone? We don't have any reports of it being any concrete reports of it being any further north than um, the North Beach in Okorito. It's like mm -hmm. a spit. And then as far south as Karangarua. But yeah, I know there's people that have been going out on their own further south and there are a few other spots where rubbish has been washing up. But it's kind of hard to... I'm not sure if it's actually from from this landfill. I mean, we had people saying that there was rubbish washing up down in Fjordland, 300 kilometers from here. And with mainly a southwesterly flow here, it'd be amazing that the rubbish traveled that far down. Mm. But there's rubbish everywhere. I mean, I was just up in uh, Abel Tasman a couple of days ago and I was pulling rubbish out of the sand up there. Mm. I went down to the beach for a swim and there's heaps of it clumped up and it's, oh, and there's rubbish all along the sides of the roads as you're driving there and all through Bulla and stuff. And it's just like, this landfill's bad and there's a lot of rubbish that washed out, but there's also rubbish washing up from everywhere. And we had a bunch of white bait huts that got washed out as well. So that was where all the big stuff, I don't know if you heard, but there were like fridges and stoves and oh, so, uh, oh, deep wow. freezers. Yeah. New Zealanders you know like a lot of New Zealanders will have heard about this and they would have thought that sounds really awful and then you know like time passes but for you guys this is an ongoing issue and what in what ways could you help New Zealanders who are outside of the west coast to understand the scale of this landfill opening you know landfills have opened before in extreme weather events in fact there was one that opened last year at the beginning of last year with Cyclone Fehi on the west coast so is this of a scale that is unprecedented I mean is it you know in terms of the scale how would you help New Zealanders to understand well, it's just huge because it's not the first one to blow out and it won't be the last. I mean, this is this is going to happen all over the country. There's already some unstable ones that I know for a fact are being monitored. You know, the scale of this, it's a national problem. And I mean, first of all, it'd be great if we all looked at all of the single use stuff and all of this plastic and everything. And we looked at things as this is going to last forever or a lot longer than than we are and made better choices. But on top of that, it's also like we do have a waste problem. We have these landfills where stuff was just chucked into like ravines and riverbeds and buried over. And now it's all starting to open up over time. And instead of us, instead of people saying, hey, let's all rally together, get the central government involved and or having the central government involve themselves and coming in and, and helping and trying to come up with a huge, a better response plan and coming up with, you know, some sort of preventative measures so this, this doesn't happen again. Instead, mm -hmm. there's a lot of finger pointing going on and everybody's afraid to touch it and councils and governments not getting along together. And, you know, it's a huge problem and it's lost momentum in the media, but people need to be aware of this because, yeah, it's, this is definitely a big part of an even bigger problem and we need awareness and we need something to be done and we need it to be done soon. Has this experience opened your eyes or given you a perspective on how government actually responds to these kinds of crises? Because we've, you know, we've been following the Facebook page that you've set up, Southwest Lynn Coastal Cleanup, and some of your comments about how 
you know, the support that you may or may not have received. I mean, even the fact that there was nobody doing anything until, you know, you took it upon yourself to start sending messages out. If you hadn't have done that, who was going to step in? And even now, while you guys are calling for help, is do you feel like government has been responsive or what do you have any reflections on the whole experience from that perspective? Well, it's hard because I haven't really spoken to anybody directly since we paused after Easter, before Easter. I haven't spoken to anybody directly from central government. It's, so it's hard for me to say what's going on in their heads. But from, definitely from our point of view, they've totally dropped the ball. It's been very irresponsibly handled. I mean, Westland District Council is a very small council. It's one of the smallest in the country with the biggest area. And, and it's no secret that the west coast gets smashed with huge weather events and creates a lot of damage so while they're trying to fund this and deal with this they're also trying to deal with replacing bridges and they're also trying to fix slips in valleys and repair roads and stuff and it's not just down here it's it's everywhere i mean Haas has had a horrible time and you know north of us has had a horrible time and this tiny little council is having to try to figure all this out on their own and they can't and it's not that they don't want to, but it's that they actually can't. So they're following under criticism, but it's like the central government should be looking at this and, and seeing like, all right, this is a huge problem that's going to continue to happen around the country. We should use this as a benchmark for learning mm. so that we can prevent this in the future. But they're not doing that. They're saying, no, this is your problem. Here's a hundred grand. Good luck, which is like a slap mm. in the face. To me, I think it's completely irresponsible and I would love to have somebody explain that to all of us down here because, yeah, we feel like it's sort of forgotten about. I mean, if this happened up somewhere on the North Island, if this happened somewhere that was really popular where people could access more, it would have got way more attention. I really believe that. You know, the arena, for example, had heaps of funding thrown at it. But down here, they give us $100,000. And then I see in, in the news that they're throwing millions of dollars at marine reserves on, on the East Coast. Well, what's the point of having marine reserves if you're letting like potentially toxic material wash out into your oceans? It's, yeah. it's, it's a joke. And um, I've never really been involved. I've never been involved with anything like this before, but I've learned a lot in the last six weeks, seven weeks. And I'm pretty disgusted with it all, to be honest. I'm amazed at a local level how selfless people are and how people are coming from all over the place to want to help out. But as far as the people who it's their job, this is what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to protect the land and the people and they're not. It's an absolute joke. And I think it's extremely irresponsible of them and they should be here and this should be fixed by now. We should have this cleaned up and we should already know what's in that landfill. It was the start of week seven. We don't know what's still in there. It's not secure. It's basically got like a little bit of rubble on poured on top of it and some geo netting, like, like a geo fabric. Like it's not stable in the least and it could blow it at any time. And they've just turned their backs on it. Uh, I don't understand why. I've heard lots of speculation as to why, but like I said, without speaking to them directly, I don't, I don't understand why, but they really need to, they need to start taking this seriously, give their heads a shake and get down here and get this sorted. So when you say like central government, like who specifically and what are you calling for? Is it just more money or more logistical support or more planning or strategy? What is it that you think, you know, if they were to just wake up and do something tomorrow, like what would you want them to do? I want them to do what they would do if this disaster were somewhere else. Like what did they do when the arena happened? Mm. Did they just start going, oh no, it's ever, no, they came in, they took over, they threw heaps of money at it, heaps of resource at it, and they got it sorted. And here, like I said, it's week seven and they're like, yeah, here's a hundred grand. Good luck. 
Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, money, resources, but attention. And yeah. Yeah. you know, they need to they need to take responsibility for this because this is a New Zealand problem, not a Southwestland problem, not a Fox landfill problem. This is a New Zealand problem. And like I put something up on my fa on our Facebook page the other day of a butter wrapper that it was butter from Auckland. And I put something underneath it. Like, so how is this not a New Zealand problem? Because this waste is coming from everywhere. You know, waste from down here ends up in landfills in other parts of the country and vice versa. And, you know, how can you just blame it on one lot of people? How long do you think it's going to take to clean up this mess and will it ever be fully clean and how much waste do you think has already escaped irretrievably into the oceans? Well, it's hard to say. Like, There's been reports of people picking up rubbish off fishing boats and then also Nero's report, which I need to read a little bit closer when I have time, but is suggesting I believe that there's a big canyon just off the coast by the Cook River mouth. And the way the ocean currents work around here, a lot of that stuff's probably getting sucked down into that canyon. So that's really hard to say, like how much actually got sucked back down. But there's still 50% of the landfill intact. Right. And nothing's been done with that other than some like fabric and some rocks. As far as could the, how long would it take this to be done? This is, this is the start of week seven, like I said. This should be done by now. We could have had this sorted by now. Like it's a lot of rubbish, but you know, if enough attention was paid and they've got some hardy trained people on the ground and into that river and cleaned it up, then yeah, then they could have this done by now and they could have long-term monitoring in place. And you know, there is going to be rubbish washing up on the beaches for the next, from this for the next few years for sure. But you know, the crux of it, if we, if we removed it all, then everybody would be able to sleep a little easier but you get everything so unstable right now. You get down to that river after just a light rainfall, light by our standards, yeah. and you can hear boulders smashing and rolling down there. And it, it just makes you cringe because then when the weather really kicks up, it's just like, what's getting washed out right now? All that nasty stuff that we just went and saw, all that work of us walking that 25 kilometers and we saw, and, and, all that stuff could be moved or shifted or gone. Like we marked everything on maps. These are our hot zones. It's, that could all be all that hard work undone because nobody's paying attention to it. Mm. And when you say, um, you know, 50% of the landfill is still there, that's all right beside the river and still at risk of, you know, being washed out again in a big weather event, right? Yeah. Well, first of all, when I say 50% of the landfill, that was told to me by somebody else. Yeah, I don't sure. know that for sure. Like I haven't yeah, measured yeah. it, but yeah. And it is, it's totally unstable. If you think about what washed out the bridge, the Waiho Bridge, it mm. wasn't water, it was big boulders that took it out, right? So mm. there's boulders crashing down these valleys and then right up in the Fox Valley, you've got like the longest, most active slip in New Zealand there. And just, yeah, over the weekend it dammed up and then luckily it burst in the morning. So that keeps damming up. If it dams up heaps and then burst with lots while it's raining really, really heavy, the whole river will flood and everything will just wash right through that landfill again and drag it down the river and out to sea. Like none of it's stable. There's still big fadges of bottles there sitting right beside where they've covered up the landfill. And there's big piles of timber with shredded plastic and who knows what all stacked up beside it. 
and all that stuff is vulnerable. And so how many volunteers have you been coordinating, Mike? Well, during the volunteer stage at the beginning, we had anywhere from 24 to 70 people going out. And that was just organized volunteers on top of that, all the locals that have been going out on their own, who have been doing an awesome job and just doing it independently. Right now, our team's small. Uh, yesterday, we had uh, six people out. So we we're sending out anywhere from, yeah, six to 10 people. And aside from a few awesome independent people who are out there combing the beaches, as far as the river goes, those are the only people that are in the river working and they are doing a great job. But if we had like 20 more teams like that, then we'd be making some serious headway. Yeah. <laughs> we definitely need help. So would you, I mean, if people are listening to this and they wanted to volunteer, is that still an option? Yeah, I do want to bring in more volunteers. Uh, uh, the problem is when volunteers want to come down because they don't know this part of the country as well, they come down and they wonder where they can stay and, we're pretty limited as far as being able to put people up. I mean, we've had some donations, but those donations, they're not going to go very far if all of a sudden we're paying for accommodations for volunteers to come through and stuff like that. So if volunteers can come down and they can look after themselves and just come out and volunteer, then yeah, that's really, really useful for us. But if they need us to try to put them up and, you know, feed them and, <laughs> and whatnot, it's quite, it's quite a tough, that's a big ask. And as far as our, we need to keep our teams right now, our river teams, we need to keep them small because like I said, Western District Council doesn't have much money to deal with this right now. And we don't want to bankrupt them and then sort of sting the taxpayers just, you know, because central government won't come down and take charge. So, yeah, I mean, it's a tough one. I'm just getting people to email me and say, hey, you know, this is where I am and this is when I could come down and this is what I can do. If it's somebody who's got the next six, seven weeks free and they can sort out a place to stay and they want to come down and join as a contractor and they're capable of walking into a dangerous place with uneven ground and doing hard, nasty work for eight hours plus a day and working around potentially hazardous materials and knowing what to do in the event that they come across something, then yeah, we'd be happy to take them on as a contractor, but we can't take anybody yeah. to do that, like just any average person, unfortunately as much as we'd love to. It's not always about numbers. Yeah, and We don't sure. want anybody to get hurt. So and if there's people who are listening to this who are like, actually, that's definitely not me, would you yeah. encourage them to sort of get in contact with the relevant minister like that or speaking to the media or trying to get more attention put back on this issue so that the right funds go to the right people to do the work that needs to be done? Yeah, yeah, share it. Share the awareness, write letters, send emails, yeah, Eugenie, Jacinta, David Parker, anybody that they know, raise that awareness, get the word out there, as well as sharing our Facebook page and sharing our posts, every single one, even if it's like, hey guys, it was a rainy day and we had the day off, get back to you tomorrow, share it. Just keep it relevant because especially down here, it's easy to forget about it. This could happen anywhere in the country <laughs> and we don't want, it'd be horrible. Nobody wants it to happen, it sucks. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. With all the stuff that you're picking up and you will be seeing a lot of stuff, is there a considerable proportion of the stuff that you're picking up where you can see quite clearly this is the kind of thing 
that actually we could be avoiding or that we could change? Are you seeing as you pick things up obvious pathways for prevention for the future for your community but also for New Zealand generally? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's trends in what's coming up. Like, I don't know why these little milk creamers are so popular, but it's terrible. They're everywhere. And then the toothbrushes, obviously, they're a big problem. I mean, there's bamboo toothbrushes for a reasonable price in all the supermarkets and they're made in New Zealand. And, you know, why not use those instead? They feel better anyways. Straws, Mm -hmm. I don't know why we need straws. If you get a frozen cocktail or a smoothie, use a spoon. If you need to stir your drink, use your finger. (laughs) Like most people just spit the straw or just throw the straw away anyways. Like straws are horrible. If you really want a straw, go buy yourself a metal straw and carry it around in your pocket. Plastic cutlery, like there's so many alternatives for these things. And takeaway coffee cups, you know, I see people in town, despite this going on, who are saying, yeah, hey, you guys are doing a great job. And it's the third time in a day that I've seen them with a different takeaway coffee cup and they're just chucking it away. It's like, that's a lot of rubbish and a lot of resource and a lot of waste just for, just for you to have a cup of coffee, you know? But then we're also finding weird things. Like there's been a lot of panties that we've found. Um, oh dear. And so, yeah. And I guess like I spent years working in the tourism industry. And so one of the theories behind that is, and I think it's a pretty solid theory is that we get tourists that come here and as they're traveling around, it's kind of tough for them to do their washing. So they buy a whole whack of cheap panties and then they just use them once. And when they're dirty, they throw them in the rubbish. So it's actually oh, wow. a crazy amount of panties. So it's literally like single-use clothing. Yeah, yeah, like it's uh, uh, it's crazy when you think about it. Like it's something that I would never even fathom. But yeah, it's the thing. Wow. <laughs> and probably a lot of people don't realize that there's plastic in that clothing as well. That's still plastic. Yeah. It's made out of spandex or nylon or whatever else is in there. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And then obviously all the usual like water bottles and there's so many different options to go and refill water bottles everywhere especially a country like new zealand like there's so many places like i i spent a lot of time working in the bush here and that and you know i go and you can fill your water bottle up out of waterfalls and out of creeks and and out of lakes and stuff down here and people still like they go and they buy a plastic water bottle with a plastic lid and just to have and maybe yeah okay you refill it two or three times but why don't you go and buy a metal one that's going to last you for ever if you look after it and there's free water all over the place like i i really don't understand why we're buying water we don't need, especially in new zealand we, we don't need to do that that's ridiculous mm. and how much you know you're mentioning those milk creamers how much of this stuff is you know because it's a high tourist tourist area um you know mm. around the glaciers how and the, you know milk creamers that sounds like the kind of thing that's probably available in accommodation like hotels and that kind of stuff how much of the stuff are you finding, can you say, does link back to the tourism industry or, or potentially does that you could, you know, feed back to local businesses to sort of stop that waste at source, not just individuals making decisions, but also businesses making decisions about what they hand out to people? So we've actually been speaking to local businesses already about different options and instead of going in there and worry, like I was kind of worried a little bit about pushback. I didn't want anybody to feel alienated or like they were being accused. And actually every business that I've spoken to has been really receptive to it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. And I mean, there's, there's a place, a hotel that's washing 
at glass bottles as an alternative for milk going into um, hotel rooms. One of the restaurants in town has stopped using um, straws for two weeks to try it out. And they're receptive to maybe just getting some metal straws just for when they need to. But yeah, they've just taken the straws right off the shelf and they're about a week into it right now, which is really, really amazing. So cool. that's the landing. Yeah, they're like, pretty cool that they've done that. And I know uh, one of the places is interested in getting rid of uh, little shampoo bottles and you know the little wrapped up bars of soap. And there's people here, that there's a girl here who makes her own soaps and body bars and stuff like that and so i know that there's a meeting going out i won't mention any names to not, not, so i don't put pressure on them until they've come to an agreement but yeah that's people are receptive there are changes already happening but you're right like so when i speak to people on the consumer level they blame the establishments when you speak to the establishments they blame the consumers, but then they also blame the big manufacturers. And if you did speak to the big manufacturers, I'm sure they would just say supply and demand as long as we can make money off of it. But what we need to do is just stop blaming everybody. It's kind of like, it's almost like a metaphor for what's happening with the cleanup. Everybody's sort of blaming everybody else and saying, no, it's your, your fault. It's your fault. What we should do is go, look, all right, it's all of our faults and it's all of our responsibilities to be able to sort this out, solve this problem and make, make some changes. I think a lot of it's just going to have to be at an education level. A lot of people are comfortable in there in the way that they live their life and all this comfort and convenience and single use is like a perfect example of comfort and convenience. But, you know, if you plant a seed with children, then that seems to have an impact with them carrying forward. So definitely have hope for the future. Hmm. Yeah, I really like what you just said then about not pointing fingers and, and actually just getting on with it. And I think maybe for some people, this is actually, you know, as we become more and more aware of the human impact on the earth, it is very overwhelming. And I think sometimes people can feel really awful deep down about the impact they may be having. And it can be like a natural human reaction to want to blame someone else because taking ownership is a difficult thing to do because it means facing up to a lot of stuff apart from having to change, which is also quite daunting. So it's kind yeah. of a delicate, it's a delicate sort of psychological process to go through, I guess, as an individual, as a community, as a country. It is, but I mean, it's doable. Like you take Hokitika, for example, and uh, I went into Hokitika uh, New World yesterday and I bought some things, I bought some fish and a few bits and they have, paper um, mushroom bags all over the place so that when you go to their you can still go and buy a pack of almonds in a plastic bag but you can go to the self-serve and you can scoop out your almonds and put it into the paper bag and write the code on there and all you're doing is buying paper and then you bring your almonds home and put them in a jar and that's if you don't have your jar that day like that's awesome and then you go to the deli counter and they're packaging their fish in paper and I asked the lady behind the counter how long have you been doing this for it's like oh like a couple of months now that's fantastic. And it's in a place like Hokitika, tiny and in the middle of the nowhere, and they're making huge changes. And just that sort of stuff, like it's a pleasure to go in there to sh shop. Like after seeing all, all of this, <laughs> polluting the beaches and the, and the forest and the wetlands and the river, you go into a shop and it, you have almost a panic attack, especially when you live so remotely and your choices are limited. And when you have someone, uh, a store like that, that's making those changes already yeah it's extremely encouraging is the feeling in westland like in the community that 
that this this event is something that really needs to change the way we do things, the way we do business. So we just can't carry on with business as usual. Do you think there's a real like, appetite for that kind of change? Yeah. Well, I haven't spoken to everybody in South Westland, but from the general, the general conversations that I'm having, especially with a lot of the like restaurant and accommodation owners and that they are keen on a change. They do realize that this is something that needs to happen. They're extremely receptive to it. And they're trying to do it on their own, like before we've even started approaching them. So I mm. think change, it is there, but you know, it, it really does come down to individual choice. I mean, if you walk into a place and you're demanding to have a takeaway container or you're demanding to have a takeaway coffee cup, are you demanding certain, like I want my little shampoo bottles and things like that. And you, you're the kind of consumer that, that expects those sorts of things and not thinking about the consequence, then all you're doing is adding fuel to the fire. Like you're part of the problem just as much as the people who made it in the first place because you're giving them a reason to continue to make it. And it's like, well, if we don't buy those things anymore, then they'll have to change. Like if you don't go and buy a pump bottle for yourself and everybody in your family and then do the same thing later on when your kid's thirsty and go buy another pump bottle and another pump bottle. If you stop doing that, then they're going to start going, Hey, what's going on? We're not really selling a lot of water anymore. The Coca-Cola company, for example, right? And then, Oh, we're not selling heaps of pump bottles of water anymore. What's the problem? Maybe we need to go out and talk to the people and find out what they want. Oh, okay. This is people raising awareness. This is people pining for a change. We need to answer that. All right. There must be a market in, something that's a little bit more eco-friendly in the long run. We can fuel that change because at the end of the day, the only thing that's fueling these major manufacturers is our money and our choices to spend that mm -hmm. money on their products. Just because they make it doesn't mean that we have to buy it. But if it's comfort and convenience that we're after, well, that's irresponsible of us. And can mm. I ask you, Mike, like, obviously you're already someone that's very aware of a lot of these issues, but from this whole experience of seeing the landfill open, seeing the waste, seeing the damage, coordinating the volunteers and so on, has it led you to also make further changes in your life or to think differently about the way that you consume beyond what you were doing already? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I consider myself quite selective. And I was always very careful, but you can always become better and better uh, and improve. And I've definitely noticed some areas that I need to improve in. But one thing that I'm really, I've learned over the past few years, especially because I come from a place that's kind of <laughs> uh, a place in Canada where people don't really think this way just yet, but it's happening. And you can't go around and preach to people and tell them, you look, this is what you're doing wrong and this is how you change it. You sort of just have to lead by example and then be encouraging when they do make the changes. You have to be patient. And that's something that I've learned from this that I think keeping that in mind is just as important as the choices that I make for myself is not criticizing the choices that others make. Not directly, not attacking them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You don't want people to shut off. But yeah, it's exactly. a difficult balance though, because obviously all the things you've seen probably giving you a sense of urgency as well for change. Well, it's hard because like I need to go back for some family events in August and my family has always, I mean, the, the way we grew up, there was, it's a lot of packaging, you know, like I remember being a little kid and having a straw and blowing bubbles in my chocolate milk in, <laughs> at home. But, and I tried the whole like harping on my 
my parents when I go back home and stuff like that. And it didn't work and it would shut them down and, you know, they wouldn't want to hear it again. And, you know, I've had a few Skypes with my parents and since this has started and um, I'm actually excited, even more excited to go back home now because they've brought in all these changes and they brought it in on, it brought it in on their own just by following what's been going on here and following our Facebook page and talking to me about it. And, you know, my sister's there and she's encouraging them and she's made a lot of changes. And just that alone shows that you can lead by example. Like that's a battle that I thought that I just had to give up on. And I was sort of dreading going back home after seeing all this stuff. And then, um, oh man, what, what am I going to see when I go and visit my family? What are they going to be doing? How much packaging is there going to be? And it sounds like they're making these amazing changes. And yeah, mm. I just, I think it's great. And I think there is like a collective sort of global awareness going on right now. And it's extremely encouraging. But it's really hard when you go out and you see all this stuff on the ground. Like the other day, I, I can't remember what I picked up. I think it was a stick of butter or something like that. And all of a sudden, I just pictured myself ripping the butter package out from underneath a log and in the riverbed. And I just put it down. I was like, I just can't. Like, <laughs> so many things I can't buy anymore. I can't buy cheese anymore. <laughs> like, mm. I'm done with cheese. <laughs> Where do you get wrapped in paper or something that's you know something that'll break down <laughs> yeah yeah no it is it's true I mean we've also similar experiences of picking the thing up and then being like well where's this packaging gonna go like how long am I gonna be with the product inside and then how long is this gonna last and is it really worth it Mm-hmm. And then, and then, you know, I can't guarantee that this thing, like, like you said, Mike, I can't guarantee that this thing isn't going to end up in the ocean, isn't going to end up potentially in an animal's stomach or something. You know, that's a, yeah. that's a terrible thought. Yeah, it's crazy, and you know, like I've seen stuff like that because I'm quite. I love being in the ocean, and I love diving, and I just love being on the water and in the water. And uh, I saw a seal last year. Uh, a big bull seal and and he was just like skin hanging off bones and he had you know the plastic strapping that comes around boxes Mm. when you get back nails yeah it was wrapped around his neck and it was cutting into the back of his neck and he was so weak and he was trying to get back out to sea and i was trying to keep my distance because i didn't want to like distress him or whatever but and i knew he'd have like a better chance on land than going out to sea but i also tried to get close at one point because i wanted to see if i can go and try to pull it off of him and as i got closer he couldn't even run away like or or move away like he was just sort of hissing at me but then his head would fall down because he was so weak and he ended up getting back into the water and a couple of us went and we went to go and try to find him later on but yeah we didn't find him but i mean that's that image alone is always stuck in my head like it's just crazy this big, beautiful, majestic, strong creature reduced to this suffering bag of bones, really dying a really slow, slow, horrible death, starving to death because of something that we created and didn't dispose of properly. I think the big thing is just people following our posts, but people following other people who are doing similar things. And if they feel like they can fuel change in their community, or if they come across a situation like this, just to 
not be afraid and just stand up for what they believe in. And as long as you're telling the truth, as long as you don't give up, then nobody's going to be able to hold you back. Mm. And I think that's a really important message to get out there because there's definitely been a couple of times where I've felt like I was trying to be, I wouldn't say silenced, but just sort of pushed to the side and we'll just let some other decisions take place that maybe a little controversial or weren't the best decisions. And I, I stuck to my guns and yeah, I probably haven't made friends with everybody because I've done that. But you know, the result in the end is that things are getting done and I'm not going to give up and be pushed around just because I'm some Canadian guy living in a village of 28 people on the edge of the world (laughs) i'm gonna keep fighting if everybody else has that attitude as well then it makes the overall fight a lot easier yeah yeah definitely and i think also the other thing that is communicated by your story too is not assuming that someone else is going to sort the problem out like if there's a big problem and you see that it's a problem you know just because it's really really bad doesn't mean that someone's necessarily going to jump in like it might have to be you yeah yeah, we can't wait around for someone else to do it. We've just got to do it. And maybe that'll, maybe that'll encourage other people to come in and join us and help out. I mean, that's, that's what happened, right? A few of us got started on this and look how many people have reached out and helped. So the best way to follow you is the Southwestland Coastal Cleanup Facebook page. Yeah. To keep up to date. Cool. Yeah, that's right. Great. Thank you so much for all the work that you have voluntarily taken upon your shoulders. We really hope that this message can get out there to the people that it needs to get to, that you guys need more support, more assistance. This needs to be taken seriously and that we really need to think about helping you guys in the short term, but also looking at what we can do in our own lives and more broadly to just reduce the amount of waste that we're going through. So thanks very much. Um, Mike and thank you for taking the time to talk with us today yeah thank you guys and thanks a lot for reaching out and I mean you guys have been out there trying to make a change and trying to feel the change for a long time and I've been following you guys and yeah you guys do some pretty amazing stuff so thank you too and thanks for supporting us and getting our message out there which is a pretty similar message to yours and bringing awareness to our cause thank you very much no worries thank you Mike 